Welcome to the Wealth Season Librarian Podcast. I'm Dean Jones, your host. This is Season 6, Episode 3. Today I was able to talk to author food writer Anne Ma. Anne has written such books as Kitchen Chinese, The Lost Vintage, The Art of French Eating, and more. I'm a fan of Ma's work, and Kitchen Chinese and The Lost Vintage are two exceptional reads that are my favorites. Her food writing work is impressive, and you will It'll really pull you in as it did me. Mastering the Art of French Eating is an exceptional work. I was pleased to talk to Anne, and I'm so glad she let me nerd out on her about her books. Here's my conversation with author Anne Ma. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. Today I'm talking to author, food writer, Anne Ma. Anne has written such books as Kitchen Chinese, The Lost Vintage, The Art of French Eating, and more. Anne, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Dean. Now, it's really weird to be talking to you because I've been living in like the space of your books for the past several months. And the thing that I, I, I love about your books is that the characters become real. And it's like when you watch a TV show for several seasons and then you really get to love the characters and then the show ends and you're like, but, but what, about, what about this person? What about that person? And it's like, you're such a wonderful writer in that you really make characters that I become invested in. Even some of the characters that I, I didn't really care for, you become like, you're like, what happened to that person? What are they doing now? And it's this really kind of like sticks with you. And that's such a real blessing to have things because it, it creates a Moorishness, I think, about the books where you want to go back and read them again and again. So thank you for the pleasure you give me over the past several months with, with some of your books. Well, that's really, really nice of you to say. And I am really um, honored that you read them all. Oh, I yeah. think maybe only uh, my husband and my parents could say the same. <laughs> That's not true. I've talked to many people who've read your books. So yeah, <laughs> that, that definitely a lot of fans out there. Now, where did writing start for you? When did you know you, did you were you a kid that was writing or when did you know I, that you wanted to write? I was definitely a kid that was writing, but um, I also grew up in, uh, as the child of immig an immigrant, at least one immigrant parent. Uh, my mom was born in China. My dad was born in California. So there was that influence to um, have a profession, um, you know, um, a, a career outside of the home and, you know, that takes place in an office or a hospital or uh, what have you. Uh, I always dreamed of writing, but after college, I went into book publishing, which I also really loved and had dreamed about doing. I worked uh, at Penguin in before they uh, merged with Random House in New York. And that is where I eventually met my husband who is a foreign service officer. He works for the State Department. And so his career requires him and us to move every three or four years. So once we got married, um, a month later, we actually moved to Beijing, China. Um, I had I did give up my job as an editor at Penguin, which was really sad and hard for me because I loved what I did. Um, but as uh, you know, I learned about Beijing more and grew more comfortable speaking Chinese. I started working for an English language expat magazine called The Beijinger. And I was their dining editor. And so I would do reviews of restaurants. Um, we would also had like a cooking column and um, would, you know, have interviews of local people um, on their regional cuisine. 
And that was basically how I started writing. And it was through that time living in Beijing for four years that I had the idea for my first novel, Kitchen Chinese. Now, is it, does some, some of what you've been saying kind of strikes me. I'm like, did you use some of that when you wrote Kitchen Chinese? Does some of this, some of this get used as kind of like parts of the main character's life, like Isabel, like how, like she worked for a magazine, et cetera? Definitely. Uh, my, it's def, it's absolutely a Romana Clay based on my, loosely based on my experiences living in Beijing. Um, so like me, the main character was working in New York publishing and she, she actually gets fired from her job and goes to Beijing to live with her sister um, where she encounters opportunities and difficulties that she never could have imagined. The mysterious Claire. Yeah. I just, I love the characters. I loved Isabel. She seems so human and really relatable. And I mean, I just loved, I, I loved even Jeff, who's kind of like, I think there are terms people use for Jeff, but like, <laughs> like he's kind of, he's just a young guy and he's kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, kind of dumb and like the mother's everybody like there was such a rich even like the publisher like the guy i think he's australian everybody in there it's just all these great characters um were any of them like taken from like real life like people that you knew or did you just create them all um they were definitely drawn from types of people i had met in beijing but they were all sort of composite characters i would say of um people i knew people who were kind of you know beijing um expat celebrities, <laughs> um, and then just developing the character as made sense in the, in the story. You really seem to take great pains to make your characters not cliche. Like every, every character, if they're not a great character, they, they, they have some humanity. If they're like, like, if they're not a good person, you still give them some humanity. The good characters still have some flaws. Did you really cry and create a balance with that to make it more realistic? Um, I, I mean, people are, well, I mean, generally speaking, most people are not black or white, terrible or good. I think most people, although, you know, recently with the news, like Vladimir Putin possibly is not included in this description, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but most people are some grayscale of um, their wants and needs and um, things that have hurt them in the past. So I, I absolutely try to keep that in mind, but you're very, very kind to say that they're not cliche. Um, you know, it's something I think all writers, all novelists, all fiction writers try to avoid is the cliche character. One thing that like, I think that, that Isabel and Kate have in common from your two books is that they're characters that are kind of fish out of water. They're like, they're from America, but they're living in another culture. Does that like resonate for me with your life moving around quite a bit? You're often kind of the fish out of water. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but absolutely. Um, I've lived in a few different countries, um, France, China, most recently Vietnam. And yes, it is. You know, one thing I think that is sort of universal for both my characters and me is that, um, you know, you when you live in another language, you can you're like you're in your own 
bubble the whole time. You can be walking down the street and not really understand what anyone is saying, not understand any of the advertising that's in the subway, not understand um, you know, any of the signs. And that can be very alienating. Yes. I, I have to ask this question because I am such a fan of Kitchen Chinese. Is there going to be a sequel, do you think, at any point? <laughs> Um, you're not the first to ask. I sometimes think about what Isabel is doing. I, um, but as for now, probably not. But I, I would love to write again about the Chinese American or Asian American experience in some form. I, what do you think Jeff is doing right now, years later? Do you think? <laughs> um, so in the book, Jeff is a... Um, He's like a pop star, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. So I actually did meet uh, when I was living in Beijing. I interviewed for an article um, someone who is similar to Jeff, a young guy who had been born and raised in America, in the United States, but moved to China. Uh, he was Chinese, ethnically Chinese, moved to China. Um, to pursue his music pop star dreams because he or his managers or maybe his parents were helping him finance it, felt that it was easier for him to get a start there than in the States, which may have been true, especially, you know, this was in the early 2000s. So really before K-pop became big here in the States and there weren't that many Asian American musical artists. So um, I haven't heard anything about him since. Um, for Jeff in the book, I really would think maybe he retired from the musical yeah. life to help out, I would use that term loosely in his family's business and is now living like in a, California suburb or uh, Atlanta suburb or something like that, um, sort of living off the, his parents' dime, but has maybe a couple of kids. He's such an intriguing character. I just, he, he kept popping up and he made me laugh so many times because he's <laughs> such a, he's such a bro. And this is like, dude, it's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. I definitely, definitely had fun creating that character. Now, didn't has anybody talked to you about make would, would you make this into a tv series if if that came up i mean i would love it there was very early on interest that has sort of petered out but um i don't know i mean this book was published in 2010 and it was uh written in you know it's very of that decade i think yeah. i moved to beijing in 2003 i believe um and so maybe if it was modernized quite a bit, I haven't been back to Beijing since I lived there. So um, I would definitely have to go back and see how things are for young and am hopeful and creative expats living there now, which is what my main character was. Yeah, I would love to, it would be a great, I mean, if anybody's listening to this and, and has that power, this would be the best TV series. It would, has to be a thing. Um, the Lost Vintage, was a book that really it I listened to it as an audiobook so I would listen to it going to work and the thing is like with audiobooks 
it's not like you have it in your house usually, unless you take it in here with you, or unless it's on your phone, it would be in my car and I would have to stop and like park and get out. And there's times when, especially when you're getting towards the end, you're like, Oh, I got <laughs> to like, so I had to get it as a book because it was just, I, I couldn't keep putting it down. Cause it was like, you get to points where you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Cause it's like, it's not like against the clock, but like, there's definitely that thing where there's kind of a sense of urgency towards the end where something's going to happen. And like in both of the, the timelines of the book. So I read that you were volunteering for the wine harvest in France. Was that how you got the idea for this book? Yes. Um, I lost vintage is very different from kitchen Chinese um, mainly because Kitchen Chinese is set in China. Um, Lost Vintage is set in France. So I really um, thank you so much for pointing out to me the similarities between the two characters because that had never occurred to me before. And um, I really, I, that's definitely something I'm going to be thinking about. Um, <clears throat> Lost Vintage, I had volunteered to pick grapes in the um, wine harvest in Champagne. Uh, and I also wrote a travel article about it, but the experience was so unusual. Um, I stayed in the vineyard house, which um, was the, the, the owners of the vineyard lived elsewhere. So it was sort of an empty rambling house with wallpaper peeling from the walls and everything. The apartment I was in, you know, it was like a house, but it had been divided into little apartments and the part I was in had been untouched or furnished, decorated in the 1960s or 70s. And so the bathroom was salmon pink and there were, um, you know, the floorboards were creaky and the electricity definitely needed redoing. It was very flickery um, and it was very easy to feel like the space was haunted. Um, which I wrote about a little bit in my travel article, but the more I thought about it, um, the more sort of a connection between the land and what the land had witnessed over the centuries um, and that feeling of ghostliness um, grew in my imagination. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. One of the things I liked about the book is there was a book within a book. And so you really, you're getting kind of two books for the price of one in many ways. And they're interconnected through a series of like, it's not a time travel story at all, but like there's this sense of kind of the past and the future emerging in many ways. So I was really just thrilled by this book. And I just, like I said, like there's a sense like towards when you get halfway through it, you start like picking up a pace where you're just going, you could feel like the tension. If it was a film, there'd be like high tension music and stuff like that. It was just really... But the thing that I was like really struck by was that I love history and I like reading about history. And I often feel like nobody really gets a good sense of what the French went through during the war. They always, I get so angry 
because I really have studied real history. And like when I hear people brag about America getting into the war, which is a bunch of BS because we really lagged in that regard. And then coming in and rescuing France, which like that's debatable. So like when people talk about that stuff, it makes me mad. And then when they call like the French like surrender, you know, whatever they, mm -hmm. they, they say about the French derogatorily, I'm like, well, you didn't know what it was like. And we, we don't have that experience in America. We can't compare. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that ever? Like, you know, it wasn't really fair how like these, some Americas like arrogantly come to France and like brag about how we say them during the war just makes me mad. Did you kind of feel that at all? Well, I've always admired very, very much the French resistance and the idea of resistance during yeah. the war in Europe. Um, and I think that is a huge part of the story. Um, as you mentioned, the book, it's a dual timeline. So there's a main character who is in the present day and then a main character who is writing a diary during the war. She's a teenage girl writing a diary during the war. Um, so what interested me was this idea of resistance and this idea of what women what happened to women during the war, yeah. because there's a lot of historical fiction about it coming out now, but um, you know, wars are mainly written by men, the stories yeah. of war. Um, so that was really the inspiration for the book, especially how women uh, were treated after the liberation. Um, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but yeah. um, the idea of um, really the, the agony and the reckoning of France after the liberation and the pain of that. Well, yeah, and there were people that probably collaborated but didn't want to be seen as collaborators. So like they would shift the blame to somebody else. Like we always see these depictions of how women were treated after the war and, and like, you know, shaving their heads and like parading through the streets and stuff like that. But you don't know their real stories or what they went through. And we often don't have perspective. Like we think of, they may have had modern inconveniences, but they were probably not, they were probably malnourished. They were probably like going without medical treatment. We don't know what it's like to live during an occupation. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have to, were you that aware of World War II history? Did you have to kind of go through a crash course studying World War II history when you wrote this? It was really living in France that made me more aware of World War II history. Um, we moved there for my husband's work uh, at the embassy. And one of the first things that we did, uh, one of the first weekends we were there, he was asked to go to a little village um, in the Loire Valley, to um, which was commemorating the anniversary of a, of a German um, attack on it. Um, it was right around the liberation when uh, the Germans just sacked the village and burnt it to the ground. And, you know, growing up in the suburbs of Southern California, nothing like that had ever occurred to me that that could happen. Yet here it was, this village um, still thinking about it, still hurting from it, um, still commemorating it, still gathering to talk about it. Um, so that, that was really eye-opening for me, that the war was 
still present, even though, you know, 75 years, 70, 75 years later. Was it hard for you to translate the idea to most Americans? Like when we think of wine, we buy it at Trader Joe's, we get like, you know, three or four bottles. It's not really a big deal to us, but in France, it's there, it's a heritage. It's like a legacy. And you were talking about like a family who had this legacy, this lost vintage. Was that hard for you to translate? Do you think everybody got it? I felt like any reader who read your book would get it, but did you feel like that would be a difficult task to take on? Definitely. Um, and that's one of the things I love about France the most is this connection between the land and the history and the food and wine um, that a dish is formed because of, you know, of, of its geography um, and also because of its history. So I think, you know, I think America is wonderful in that we're always welcoming new people and these new from different countries and um, immigrants are bringing in new flavors and new traditions and they're all sort of merging and melding and new things are coming out of that. I think that is equally fantastic and wonderful. Um, but that is also very different from what is in France where um, they're um, traditional, very traditional, very attentive to protecting those traditions. Um, and very protective. You've had some great characters in this. I really loved the characters. And like with Kitchen Chinese, a lot of the characters stuck with me after the fact. You know, Kate is a great character. And I really love Jean-Luc. He was just like, I really felt so sorry for him and his heartbreak and what he must have been going through. I really, it was one of the few male characters I've ever encountered that I really felt empathy for. Like, I'm like, I just want to like buy him a beer and go, it's okay, man, this is going to get better. You know, just wanted to kind of, he, did, was it hard writing his character, writing a male character like that? I think John Luke, John Luke is the love interest of Kate's, of Kate, the main character, the main character in the contemporary timeline. And um, she, their story is one of young love that peters out um, because of, I guess, societal expectations on women, right? Um, Jean-Luc, as a young, when they were young, you know, really expected her to marry him and take care of the home and their kids while he went out and did the vineyard work. Um, and she was not interested in that type of insular role. Yeah. Um, I think... John Luke was actually quite hard to write because yeah, it's hard to, to switch to, to enter into the perspective of a man. Um, you're very, very kind to say those nice things about him. I, I wonder, you know, if I could have done a better job with him or explored him nah, a little more. <laughs> no, nah, you did a great job. He was, he was wonderful. Really good job with that. Um, I was going to ask you, you've written a lot about food in your writing, like uh, kitchen Chinese had a lot of food in it and like, you know, doing the restaurant reviews and stuff like that, talk, going to restaurants. There was a lot, food played a big role as did of course in um, The Lost Vintage. Is it harder to write food writing or write fiction with food in it? Is it, is it like equally hard or is one or more, more hard than the other? Um, they both have challenges. 
I do think because I wrote a cookbook, um, a French cookbook for the instant pot, it's called instantly French. Yes. So working on that, um, was my first time really diving into a project of developing recipes and testing recipes and, um, you know, that sort of very scientific process of recipe writing. It is very difficult physically um, and you are buying a lot of food and cooking a lot of food and honestly giving away a lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's challenging. Um, but in terms of being mentally taxing, to me, nothing is as difficult as fiction. Now, I really enjoyed mastering the art of French eating lessons in food and love from a year in Paris. You just had some wonderful chapters in it. I really like how you kind of outline like your life there as kind of somebody who's I want, I don't want to use the word stranded, but I'm trying to think you're kind of like plunked, plunked in France, which would be wonderful. I think for any, many people, but it was kind of a lonely thing for you because your husband always wasn't always there when you were writing the one um, chapter I really enjoyed where you're hunting down the origins of a, um, a buckwheat crepe, I think called a galette. Was that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really love that part. Cause you're kind of like a food detective. What, what was that like for you that, that ex experience? Um, if you want to kind of relate to that, to the listeners. So I, like I was saying, I love this connection between history and place and um, a recipe, how a recipe grows out of that. And so the buckwheat galette, um, I had not really, I had not really encountered before I moved to Paris. Um, not, it wasn't something I had thought about, but in France, uh, a savory crepe or cup is made from buckwheat flour, which has a really distinct nutty, grainy, um, hearty taste, flavor, and texture. Um, and I was cu really curious about why. So I, you know, went out to Brittany and rented a car. I got horribly lost trying to find a dairy farm. Um, I just remember driving around in circles for hours and trying to call the woman. I was so I was so late and trying to call her on my cell phone, but there was no cell phone service and just this, you know, you, you know that terrible feeling of panic when you're late and lost and just in the middle of a field. Um, but what I loved about it was meeting the people who produced buckwheat and who produced the butter, the cultured butter from cultured cream, which is so important to the region um, and learning about their products. And um, also the region of Brittany is unusual in France because it's not a wine producing region. They drink cider there. They, it's too cold to grow grapes there. The climate is just not right. So in terms of, you know, gastronomically, um, it's a little bit unusual compared to the rest of the country. So yes, that was one of my favorite chapters to write. And I just loved, you know, getting a, meeting people and then getting a tip from them for someone else to meet and getting a phone number and making contacts and um, interviewing and just learning. It was really a wonderful, enriching experience. I want to ask you, um, who are some of the food writers that you enjoy that have been an inspiration to you through the years? 
Um, let's see. I really love Julia Child, of course. Um, her book, My Life in France, uh, really, it's, I read that it came out, I guess, um, when I was living in Beijing before I ever moved to France. And I read it and just dreamed of living in Paris um, with, you know, because she also was the wife of a diplomat. Um, I felt like her experiences were so, she was so honest about them and clear and she was, she persevered. She was such a hard worker and she really didn't give up. Um, I really admired that. And of course, you know, her food writing also is marvelous. Um, I think that mastering the art of French cooking could be read as like a guide to France itself um, with the way she covers all the different regions. Absolutely. Now, I want to ask you a question uh, just personally, because my I, I live here in the Bay Area and the Lost Vintage has some shout outs to bits of the Bay Area. You, you talk about driving past Berkeley and being in UC Davis and being in the city. Uh, do you get to spend much time here in the Bay Area? And if you do, where what are some uh, places you like to go to to eat? I do not. I am from Southern California. So I um, and I'm a Southern Californian who has always admired the Northern California. Um, I, my husband went to college at San Francisco State. So um, he is really my Bay Area guru, mm -hmm. <laughs> personal guru. Okay. Um, and my dad spent a lot of time at Davis, at UC Davis. Nice. Yeah. Great so, school. So, yes. Um, and so I guess the parts of the book that mention those places are sort of in homage to, to, hearing them talk about their, them so fondly, you know, their times at Davis, my dad, and for my husband, his times in San Francisco. Um, I really, we, I took a trip there a few years ago and I loved eating at uh, the Slanted Door. Yeah, great place. So good. Um, we did, I was with my parents and we did like a, like a eating tour of San Francisco. So we went to all the, uh, the hot spots, um, Zuni cafe, which was then nice. also amazing and, um, slanted door, such a great dining room too. They have there. I love the ferry building. Um, oh, the ferry building is magical. Mm -hmm. And then we also went to Chez Panisse, which was, oh. <laughs> uh, a really huge treat. Oh, it's the best. Oh yeah. We've had a lot of uh, chefs from there on the show and they're just so fun to talk to them about their time there. Well, actually on that same note, uh, being a Southern California and living abroad, what are, what are you miss? What are the things you really ache for when you're living abroad from, from California? Oh, I love C's candy. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, you who know, doesn't? I guess, who, well, you know, who doesn't really? <laughs> and you know, I've had the, I love Paris chocolate shops as well. But to me, there is nothing like a C's caramel or, yep. yeah. Um, so we always, I always, my parents always get a box of nuts and shoes at the holidays. And it's really one of my favorite parts of going home for the holidays. Um, I love In-N-Out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love all the Asian supermarkets. Um, yes. 
especially, um, you know, we live near that um, area in Westminster, Orange in Orange County, where there's so many Vietnamese supermarkets that are so great to go to. I love all the produce there and just how easy it is to just drive there and park and go inside. It's just very accessible. Um, and I love, I love the produce of California. Oh, yeah, we're very lucky. So I have a last question to ask you. You have a new book coming out this year called Jacqueline in Paris. Um, can you give us any spoilers or are you allowed to talk about it at all? Yes. So Jacqueline in Paris, it's coming out on September 20th. Um, and it is about it is about the year Jacqueline Bouvier, so Jackie Kennedy. Oh my God, wow. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> spent uh, in Paris as a student from 1949 to 1950. She was uh, on exchange in Paris. Um, this is before she had met or Jack Kennedy or gotten married or anything. She was 20 years old. Um, she traveled there with the Smith in Paris program and lived with a woman, a countess and her two daughters and then a few other students, a couple other students in a rambling apartment. Um, the Her host mother was actually a former resistance spy who had been captured and taken to Ravensbrück during the war. And the husband, the count, um, had died and in, a, in a concentration camp. They were both resistance spies. So there was a sort of tragic mourning atmosphere um, in Paris at the time. It was you know, five years after, after the war and people were still struggling with the ghosts of it. Um, the political situation in Europe was quite fragile. Um, there was a lot of, it was the beginning of the Cold War. So there was a lot of tension between the Soviets and the rest of Europe and, you know, a lot of spying. Um, and Jacqueline Kennedy later for, called it the happiest time of her life, the happiest year of her life when she was, you know, sort of carefree and had no, there were no expectations. So this book is, a, it's fiction. Um, but it's based on that year. Um, and I was inspired by a tra another travel story I wrote following in her footsteps there in Paris and visiting, you know, I, vis I met with her former host sister and I um, saw the building where she lived and went to Reed Hall, which is the center for American universities in Paris and um, sort of retraced her path there. But, um, because there's not, you know, she's extremely private. So hardly any, there are only a few tiny excerpts of her letters that exist or that, you know, are available to the public. So it really gave me the opportunity to create a story of this young woman who is exploring, um, it's her intellectual and aesthetic awakening, really. That sounds wonderful. I can't wait to get my hands on that. I can't okay, wait till well, this comes I'll, out. It's gonna be great. <laughs> Great. Well, I will definitely um, put you on the list and get an early copy sent to you. Thank you. No, yeah, yeah. that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I, let's have you back on the show if you want. When it comes out, we can have you discuss the book and that would be awesome. promote that. I want to really thank you for being on the program. I've loved getting a chance to talk to you. Thank you for letting me nerd out and talk about the books because I really love talking about your books because it's they're so fun and I just want to share them with everybody. 
Well, thank you so much, Dean. This has really been a pleasure. That was my conversation with author Ann Ma. I'm so glad to be able to get a chance to talk to her. And she was so patient with all my questions. You can purchase her books, Kitchen Chinese or The Lost Vintage and more at all better bookstores. On Wednesday, we're going to have an encore presentation with J.P. McMahon, the Irish cookbook author. He's going to be um, talking to me about his big book, The Irish Cookbook. I really love that book, and I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to J.P. He is also the owner of restaurants Anier, Cabo Bodega, and Tardier Cafe. On Thursday, which is St. Patrick's Day, we're going to have Bally Malo, cookery school owner and author, Darina Allen on the podcast. I'm really a huge fan of hers and getting to talk to her was just a thrill. Um, she's going to be on Thursday, St. Patrick's Day. And then we're going to also have on Friday, Carolyn Hennessy, an author in Ireland as well. She's going to be talking about the official Guinness cookbook that came out last year, and it's a wonderful cookbook. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk to her. So until then, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Monday and happy cooking. I've been getting better, better than you.